You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode. Before I introduce a very special guest that I am so honored and delighted to have on the show this week, I wanted to remind you all about the free four-part Building Resilience series as well as the new Holistic Coaching Program. And you can find more information about both of those resources in the show notes for today. The four-part video series is an integration of science-backed strategies from psychology with tools from complementary and alternative medicine offered with the intention of helping you cultivate four key pillars of resilience. The first being body awareness, which can really help you center yourself and live in a more present, focused, and embodied way even in the midst of extreme stress. The second involves tools focused on decreasing your stress response so that you can more easily access intuition and connect to your needs. The third is values clarification to help guide your decision making and living life intentionally in a way that really helps you prioritize your time, attention, and energy in a way that matches your values. And the fourth is focused on self-compassion. So ways that you can soften your inner critic and facilitate growth following mistakes. And so all of the tools shared in this series are meant to be customizable, integrated into a busy lifestyle, to help you feel more confident in your ability to both cope with and recover from life stress and also help you target common challenges like anxiety, self-doubt, self-judgment, and confusion about direction, meaning, and purpose. So I'm so excited to share these powerful tools with you and hope you join me for that series. It is with so much joy that I introduce Kira Willie to you today. Kira is the author of some incredible books, including Peaceful Like a Panda, the Mindfulness Moments for Kids series, and the best-selling book, Breathe Like a Bear, which are all huge favorites in our household. Kira is also a kids yoga and mindfulness expert, children's music artist, and creator of rock and yoga school programs. She has released five albums of kids yoga and mindfulness songs, and her work has won Parents' Choice Gold, Independent Music, and International Songwriting Awards. Kira has many musical hits, and one in particular is Colors, which was featured in a worldwide Dell ad campaign. She created and hosts several Yoga for Kids programs, which air on PBS TV affiliates nationwide, 
and her TEDx talk, Bite-Sized Mindfulness, can be viewed online. And if you have not seen her TEDx talk, I highly encourage you to check it out. It's really powerful, hugely inspiring, as are the many different offerings that she has gifted to the world. And so I really encourage you to follow her and check out her many resources. And I'll be including links to everything in the episode notes for today. So you can find lots more information at her website as well which is kirawilly.com, K-I-R-A-W-I-L-L-E-Y.com. Kira has many, many other accolades, so please do read more about her and follow her if you are not already. She's such a gem. So Kira, I'm so, so happy to welcome you here today. Thank you so much for carving out the time to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. You're so welcome. Well, so Kira, I thought it would be helpful to start with a bit of an introduction to you and your journey towards this integration, this very powerful integration of mindfulness and movement and music. So I would love for you to share a bit about what led you to this passion and this path. Yeah, sure. Well, my um, path started after I realized I did not belong in corporate America. <laughs> I had a job that just did not suit me and <clears throat> and I was looking for something else. I walked by a uh, parent-child music program and there was a sign in the window that said hiring. And I just walked in, I got hired on the spot, I quit my corporate job and I started teaching 20 classes a week of a uh, parent-child music program where the curriculum was predetermined and and, you know, mommies and daddies and nannies brought their kids and we all sat in a circle and sang the wheels on the bus and that kind of thing. And I loved it. It was fabulous. Um, but I started wanting to teach my own curriculum. I started and I also noticed that kids were most engaged by far when the music and the movement were combined. So those were two things that kept were kind of in the back of my brain as I was teaching all these classes over and over and over every week. At the same time, I was discovering my own yoga practice and um, starting to starting to develop that and find a passion for that. And I, so I took a kids yoga training, teacher training certification. So all these things kind of came together, right? At the same time, and I thought, I wanna be a kids yoga teacher. I'm gonna come up with my own curriculum. I'm gonna combine music and movement because I noticed in all these teaching, all these, these classes, how incredibly engaging that is. So that's how that got started. And when I first started teaching kids yoga, I was actually kind of intimidated by walking into a room of extremely energetic five-year-olds, <laughs> right? I mean, right. Which, you know, it's funny because I know so many yoga teachers who teach only adults. And, and whenever we, we talk, they say, I think you're crazy. I could never teach a room full of, <laughs> you know, five-year-olds. That sounds terrifying to me. And at the beginning, I, you know, I kind of felt the same way, right? It's like, you feel like you're, it's just Lord of the Flies in there. Like, you're not going to, how are you going to manage this group? So I brought my guitar. And for me, it was kind of almost a crutch because it's like, for me, it's like holding a teddy bear because I've been a lifelong musician, right? And I just started singing my instructions. Mm. And it just worked so beautifully. And that's how I wrote the Dance for the Sun song, which is, you know, if kids yoga teachers know me, it's often through that song. And that's became my first album. Wow. And then I just thought, well, this is the way I'm going to teach kids yoga is through music. And then you add on, and I, I didn't learn these benefits till later, the incredible benefits of music and rhythm for kids' brains and their bodies, 
combined with the incredible benefits of movement, particularly yoga-based movement for kids' bodies and brains. <clears throat> and it's just a magical combination. And then later I started getting into what we now are calling mindfulness. I was doing it all along, but didn't really have a name for it, mm -hmm. honestly, because the mindfulness boom didn't really happen until, you know, a few years ago, really. Um, and it was a no brainer to integrate that sort of M as well. So those, that's why my three M's music movement, mindfulness for kids. Um, you know, that's what I'm all about integrating those, um, in any way that I can for children, because all three have incredible benefits, but when you put them together, you know, it's really like just the perfect storm of, of powerful results for kids. Mm -hmm. And one of the aspects of your work, Kira, that I just love so much is how you create such accessibility when it comes to these practices and show how they can be fun as opposed to a chore or something that feels like drudgery. I think oftentimes even adults whose brains are more developed and potentially have more skill sets developed to manage the ebb and flow of emotions in our inner lives can get very intimidated by mindfulness practices. And so I really love how you demystify what it means to practice mindfulness. And even I think many people think of mindfulness as a mind practice because of mm -hmm. the word itself, sure. which I think is a bit of a, a misnomer. And I know it's translated in different ways and different languages, but essentially I think another reason that I'm so drawn to your work is that you also demonstrate how it is this embodied practice. It's not just about harnessing the mind. It's also about right. um, a holistic way of approaching mindfulness. Yeah. I think that a lot of people are intimidated by mindfulness because first of all, they think they need some kind of special training, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They need to go on a retreat and mm -hmm. learn about it. They need to take a six-week course. They need... No. If you think about the definition of mindfulness, which I say is just paying attention to the present moment with kindness and curiosity, it's really very simple and anyone can do it, mm -hmm. right? But that doesn't mean it's easy, right? right. Those are two kind of different things. Um, so number one, people think they need to have special training. They really don't. And that's really the um, main message of my TED talk. So if you do check that out, you know, that's really what I'm going, I'm hammering home there is you don't need any special training. And second, there's this conception about mindfulness that to practice it, you need to, you know, sit still on a cushion and close your eyes and, and, and breathe for, you know, half an hour or whatever it is, not the case at all. You can be mindful and be active at the same time. And particularly for children, if you can combine mindfulness and movement, you know, it's, it's so engaging for them, right? Because they, their bodies love to move. They're moving all the time. So you can take a mindful walk. You can eat mindfully. You know, you can listen to sounds mindfully. You can notice what's happening outside mind. All that is developing the practice of mindfulness. And so, like you said, to embody it, to, to use, you know, the, the senses and use your body to practice mindfulness works so well with kids. Um, it just, it just doesn't need, it can be sitting still and breathing, but it doesn't need to be in order to, to develop the skill of practicing mindfulness and to realize its benefits. Absolutely. And it also, I think, can then create more opportunity for it to be a relational practice for us to practice together when we're expanding our 
definition or our conceptual framework, so to speak, of what it means to be mindful. Like you said, it doesn't have to be seated still on a cushion with eyes shut for 45 minutes. It it can be integrated throughout the day. And that's another beautiful message I think about uh, that's in your work woven throughout, as well as your TED talk, this idea of bite-sized mindfulness and ways that we can integrate mindfulness throughout our days. Because I think for people who do have a formal meditation practice, I think one of the goals, if that's even appropriate to say for meditation, but one of the goals for meditation is to be able to take that practice off the cushion and to approach life in the same way that with that, as you said, non-judgmental curiosity um, throughout our lives. And so I love this idea of bite-sized ways that we can all practice mindfulness. And this is really something that I emphasize in my own life and in the work that I do with clients, that it's really important for us to cultivate, to create personalized mindfulness practices that are bite-sized, that we can integrate into our busy lifestyles. Because sometimes when we are too ambitious and create these really extreme definitions of what it means to be mindful, we end up falling short because we're not being realistic about the parameters of our lives and ways that we can truly practice mindful living in a way that doesn't need to be an extra layer. It can be integrated into what we're already doing. I I talk about the three essential elements of practicing mindfulness with kids. And one of them is keep it short, (laughs) you know, (laughs) keep it short, Mm -hmm. you know, keep everybody's attention. But what that means is if you can do a 30 second practice, whatever that is, or a 60 second practice, you can fit that in, you know, however many times a day. And if you make a habit of it, and what I say to keep it consistent, that's another one, three elements are short, kid friendly and consistent. Um, If you keep it consistent by attaching it to something that you already do every day, like every morning you get in the car to go to school or every morning you, you know, sit at the counter and have your piece of toast or every afternoon you have, you know, story time or every bedtime, you have, if you can attach your 30 second mindfulness practice, maybe that's noticing what's around you. Maybe that's taking 10 deep breaths. Maybe that's listening to a chime. Maybe it's practicing a little bit of gratitude with deep breaths. If you can attach it to those things that you, you and your family do every day already, that's a home run, right? Now it's Mm -hmm. part of your routine and you have a consistent practice and that's where the benefits start to come in. But like you said, it doesn't need to be this big, you know, long thing in quotation marks. It can be a very simple, very short practice. And when I wrote Peaceful Like a Panda, I divided the activities into times of day for that very reason. You know, so there's rise and shine and there's, are we there yet? Which is the section for traveling or in the car, you know, playtime, brain boosters, all that. So you can go to that section. So if you're looking for a practice that works really well in the morning, go to that section and pick one of the very simple quick practices to do say every morning, you know, right before you get dressed or every morning at the breakfast table or every morning on the way to school. Um, Because I know that that's how it'll best be integrated into a family's life with young children. And if it's easy to do, and if it's automatically attached to the brushing your teeth or whatever you already do, it's more likely to happen and more likely to find, to realize the benefits. I I really love that, that tip and these insights, because I know for me personally, my own practice of yoga and mindfulness and meditation 
shifted quite considerably once I became a mom. And I really needed to reconfigure how I I did things (laughs) because it wasn't just me anymore. And I couldn't reliably get up at the same time every day or trust that I had had a good night's sleep if there were interruptions (laughs) in that sort of thing. Right. So I think for me, this, this idea of bite-sized mindfulness was something that I really discovered in my, my own journey as a parent, just the utility of having these briefer ways to practice. And, and I noticed an improvement, so to speak, in terms of my own presence, because like you said, Mm -hmm. that consistency is just so important for all of us in terms of skill building and getting to a place where something feels that much more accessible over time. So I think for me, it's been such a gift to be able to integrate my own practice of mindfulness with my kids' practice of mindfulness. And it can be a way of uniting and bonding and an opportunity to have fun together. So it's it's a win-win situation, sharing something win-win. with him. That's such a valuable practice that I wish I had been taught when I was six. I know. And I also am able to practice for my own personal benefit as well. So I hear a lot of parents and teachers particularly say that when they start bringing this to their children and they do it, that they're really noticing the benefits too, right? I recall a a first grade teacher who would do a 60 second practice um, with one of my exercises every day before math at the beginning of math. And I think at first she just kind of thought it was something she would give them to do, but she started doing it herself she really realized well I have to demonstrate this I have and so she started really realizing the benefits and feeling and she said the the room you know became just so calm that they were so much more efficient and productive when that math class started so even if it's short you know Mm -hmm. the adults are going to realize the benefits with the kids if you practice it with your children yeah it's a it's a a great side benefit yeah absolutely and I I think I might have shared this story with you Kira when we first connected but I still remember very vividly in my mind I think my son was maybe three or four and he was having just a really hard set of moments and some big emotions and all of my attempts at validating him fell very flat and made the situation Mm. worse, which as a therapist, it's pretty demoralizing when you're trying to use your best skills with your children and they're not working. And so, um, (laughs) over time, you know, we've gotten into a better rhythm in terms of figuring out what he needs to support himself in regulating and all of that. But at, at this moment in time, I realized, okay, I, I need to give him some space. And I know that if I leave the room, that will also make things worse. So I went into the corner and sat down on the beanbag chair and just put one hand on my belly and one hand on my chest and just started breathing. I didn't say anything to him. I wasn't looking at him. I actually intentionally turned my body a little bit away from him. So he wouldn't feel like I was staring at him. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how long it took, but after a few minutes, he came over and he just sat into my lap with your book, Breathe Like a Bear. Mm. And then we started reading. And so there was something about my regulation of myself and my own inner state that I think 
allowed him to regulate. There was some kind of, I think, co-regulation that happened. And, and again, it wasn't me saying, oh, Max, you really need to breathe right now, or let's calm down together, because that wasn't what he needed. Or even me saying, oh, it sounds like you're really upset right now. That just made everything worse. It was just actually the spaciousness and the silence and my presence that, and I didn't plan this. It wasn't like I had this whole strategy in mind. I just was doing what I needed to do to regulate my own nervous system. Right. And it, and it really, so for me, that was just a really beautiful example of how these strategies do land. He was able to just of his own volition realize, okay, I need something to soothe myself and, and grabbed her book and we sat down and then we did some exercises. So I love that. Yeah. Kids are so intuitive. I mean, any parent knows that kids will pick up on your state, no matter how much you try to fake it. They'll, right. they'll pick, right. They're going to pick it up. You cannot fake it. Um, and so you need to pay attention to your own you, your own state of, of regulation, like you said. I mean, I tell you know teachers, yoga teachers all the time, if you don't practice it, you can't you can't teach it or you can't teach it well, I should say, right? Mm-hmm. You need to practice it in order to teach it. And so whenever I do a training with with classroom teachers and about bringing mindfulness into the classroom, I encourage them to develop, any consistent mindfulness practice on their own, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's getting into the classroom a few minutes early and just sitting in quiet and breathing, whether it's sitting in the car in the parking lot before walking into the school building and breathing, any small mindfulness practice to get themselves really regulated and present before coming to the, mm-hmm. the children, it makes mm-hmm. a huge difference. Yeah. They pick up on, on your state and it has a real effect on them. I think that's a really great point because even though, as you said, we might feel like we're faking it well and we're controlling our facial expressions, they are intuitive and they are sensitive. And so it makes a a big difference. I, there's, this is reminding me of something I heard you talk about a couple of months ago related to boys specifically and some of Mm -hmm. the research on their brain activity. And I think, please correct me if this isn't Correct. But I remember reading something about research focused on girls' brain activity remaining at about 90% when they're sitting and listening, whereas boys can drop to 70%. But if lessons include a movement element, boys' attention and recall ability greatly increases. So essentially it's more difficult for many boys to pay attention because so much of their brain is dedicated to movement because the motor centers in boys' brains are much larger. And so those areas are active even when more cognitive processes are taking place. So I think this research is really helpful because Mm -hmm. it explains in a non-judgmental way that there really are some biological differences that could be happening that contribute to some challenges that we see with sitting still. And I think so often that gets pathologized and it it could be girls as well, or kids of any gender identity, but kids who have a hard time sitting still that can be viewed as a, as a problem as opposed to sort of a natural occurrence. And And there being an opportunity for the systems of families, of schools, of 
different kinds of after-school programs to really support kids in giving them what they need. So I was wondering if you could speak just a little bit more to, again, these three M's and the importance of integrating all three. Yeah. Well, the movement and boys piece is something that um, hits close to home for me. I have two boys and a girl and um, my boys are of the bull in a china shop variety, particularly one of them. <laughs> and I remember when he was little and we went to, you know, say a mommy and me class where you all sit in a circle on the floor and he was the one who would get up and run in circles around the room. That was him. Circles and circles and circles. And you'd think he'd get tired. He wouldn't get tired. You would just run, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, and yes, yeah, some, um, teachers would label that as a problem, right? Mm -hmm. He's difficult. He's challenging. He's disruptive. He's, you know, put your own fill in, fill in the blank. He wasn't, he just needs to move, Mm -hmm. just needs to move. Mm -hmm. Like he actually would come away from whatever that class was and remember what had been taught or said, or the song that had been sung or whatever. He was absorbing it. He just had to move while he was doing it. Mm -hmm. And my children went to a Waldorf school and Waldorf education is places a huge emphasis on movement and um, frequent movement breaks, lots of time outside and that kind of thing. And, and he was really successful there and did great. But I firmly believe that he had been in a, a sort of a typical, and I put that in quotes, public school where even kindergartners are sitting still at a desk for, you know, five, six hours at a time. That would have been really, really challenging. And he probably would have been, you know, labeled a troublemaker or a disruptive kid or, or something like that, because I have seen this over and over and over again in the public schools that I have visited, which number probably in the thousands now, where the kids who have a really hard time sitting still get punished for it. They get disciplined for it. They get sent Mm -hmm. out. They get, you know what I mean? Or worse yet, they get, they get kept in from recess, which is exactly what they need. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a statistic that I read not too long ago where something like, and I'm, I'm not getting these exactly right, but the great majority of principals agreed that recess helped kids regulate, right? Mm-hmm. It helped them behave better. It helped them perform better academically. However, the great majority of schools still use withholding recess as a form of discipline. Those two things don't wow. go together, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense. So I've seen it over and over again, and I've tried so hard in, in my professional development trainings to get across to teachers that children, especially boys, for them, movement break is, our movement isn't a break from learning. Play, outside play, big motor movement isn't a break from learning. It is learning for them. Mm-hmm. It is how they learn. So to deprive them of those, those opportunities for that, that big movement is depriving them of the ability to get in the optimum state for learning. So it just doesn't make sense if you understand the science of the brain, like you said. So I, I, but I, but unfortunately, many, many teachers, I mean, many parents, many adults just don't have this information. They don't understand it. Right. So they don't, they don't know, but movement is a really, really big one for kids, especially boys to get them primed into the state for learning and music and mindfulness have similar benefits in the brain, right? Music puts the brain in an optimum state for learning because it increases the blood flow to the brain. This is really interesting, but if you listen to, if you take a brain scan of someone who's listening to someone speak, that particular part of their brain is lit up that processes, you know, audio speaking. 
But if you look at a brain scan of someone listening to a piece of music, much more of their brain is lit up, mm. right? Because it's more complicated to process. So that puts the brain in an optimum state for learning, which is why in a kid's yoga class, I will start to sing or use a rhythm, a spoken word to a rhythm to teach what I'm trying to get across to kids instead of just speaking to them because they hear speaking all day long, right? Mm -hmm. And it only lights up that small part of their brain. And mindfulness as well, we all know the benefits of mindfulness. It also helps focus the brain. So these three together, any combination that you can employ to use for children helps put their brain in the optimum state for learning, right? It is learning. These things aren't extras or enrichment or, you know, whatever, that kind of word. They put kids' brains in the prime state for learning, for retaining information, for absorbing information. So that's why I believe so powerfully <laughs> in these three M's. Yeah, I really appreciate you explaining all of that because I think in addition to the benefits of learning, there are some real self-esteem benefits and self-image benefits because of course, as we're saying, kids are intuitive, they're sensitive. So they can tell if a teacher seems disappointed in them or they can tell if they're viewed as a quote unquote problem. And so those messages can really get internalized in a very harmful way and have very longstanding effects into adulthood. So the learning itself, these practices can support the learning itself, but also I think can support self-confidence and self-esteem because right. for kids to feel more empowered and just more confident in themselves and their ability to learn, I think is really impactful as well as, as we're saying, more able to regulate, more able to understand what their bodies needs. And as you know, right. there are many of us as adults who are <clears throat> learning this in adulthood what, what do I need to sit still? How many breaks? Right. What kinds of breaks? Because again, right. our, our, our culture in the U S is, um, doesn't necessarily as a standard of practice, talk that much about movement. And like you said, it's framed more as a break as opposed to a yeah. part of the process. Right. right. So I think it is also helping kids understand early on in a way that's really beneficial in the long run, what they need to need to support their well-being holistically right. and in ways they can carry these skill sets forward into adulthood because again many of us are learning these self-care practices as adults and figuring out what we need to feel like we are in an optimal state for right. all of the different activities of our lives it's the self-awareness piece that's really really critical that you know, I was never taught, you were probably never taught, and I have a hard time with as a grown up. But when you self awareness is so key, we all are so preoccupied a lot of the time. We're plugged into screens, we're on laptops, we're on our phones, we're or we're just plain busy or running around that that self awareness piece gets lost. And that's what mindfulness can bring. And self awareness helps you understand what your body needs, right? I mean, mm -hmm how many times do you go through the day and not realize, you know, your shoulders are up to your ears because you've been so tense, right? Or, <laughs> or you're actually really hungry, or you just haven't had enough water, or you, you know, have had to go to the bathroom for an hour and you just didn't go because you're so, you know, or whatever it is. It's that self-awareness piece. And for, you know, older kids and adults, I teach just a simple stop break. It's called, you know, stop, take a breath, observe, proceed, 
it can take 15 seconds, 30 seconds, but developing that self-awareness is how we start to understand what we need. And for children, if you can teach them that at a young age to just pause once, twice, three times a day and just tune in, just get off the screen for a second, stop the game for a minute, you know, whatever it is, just tune in just for a few seconds with a few deep breaths to how you're feeling, to what you're thinking. Oh my gosh, what a valuable practice, right? That's how self-care starts to become an important value. That's how you you start to, you know, understand what you need and, and you know, be able to take care of yourself, be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. And being kind to yourself is what has to happen before you can send that kindness and goodness out into the world, right? It's really the foundational practice of all the social emotional skills that we want our kids to have. So it all starts, you know, I have a tree that I t- use to teach mindfulness to kids. Um, and the root, you know, the, the base of that tree is that self-awareness piece. Mm-hmm. And when you get that or start working on that self-regulation and self-awareness, then you can, you know, start to grow the branches of kindness and compassion and gratitude and responsible decision-making and all those great things we want kids to have. But it starts with that mindful self-awareness, like you said, and that that's how you develop um, the skill of taking care of yourself and being kind to yourself, which again, I wish I had learned mm-hmm. as a child. And, you know, I think many of, of us adults wish we had learned as children. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we would all probably be in a different place. Yeah, <laughs> if we, if we had. Sure. And, and yet it's, it's never too late. As you know, the brain is plastic. And so, right. um, it's just, as you know, when we're children are brains are so much more malleable. And so it's just a prime time to be developing some of these skill sets and strategies. Right. Right. I really appreciate you mentioning the stop skill because that is one of my personal favorites that I, again, use in my own life and share with clients and even have taught to my six-year-old because there is so much power in a pause. And as you said, by pause, that can mean five seconds, 10 seconds, 30 seconds. But so often we underestimate the power of the pause. And in fact, our society often trains us to be fast and reactive. And so we almost react quickly habitually. And so we have to undo that conditioning and train ourselves to slow down and tune in. And that acronym of STOP, take a few deep breaths, observe what's happening and then proceed mindfully is so powerful because it gives us the opportunity to check in in mind and body and spirit with our internal landscape what's happening in the context and the environment around us to make an intentional choice that matches what we need that really serves us as opposed to making a choice that actually perpetuates a high state of emotion dysregulation or reactivity or defensiveness or conflict with others so it can really also help us shift the trajectory that we might have otherwise gone down if we hadn't taken the time to take that pause. So for me, this ability to pause and to stop is a way to step out of reactivity and into choice, to really live our lives with a sense of empowerment and intentionality and to be able to be skillful in our responses, regardless of the emotional swirl that might be happening. And I love how in your work, you 
teach self-awareness through different modalities. So it, like you said, there is such a menu of options Mm -hmm. for different ways to teach self-awareness. There are practices that are focused on you know, tuning into signs of hunger. There are practices that are more focused on the breath or the temperature of your body. And so helping kids figure out what feels most accessible to them, I, I think it's just really lovely that there's such a variety of ways that kids can, again, develop a sense of confidence and their ability to tune in and, and how you've structured the different or clustered different types of practices. Mm -hmm. So I'll notice that my son will even say, I want to do an imagination practice right now, or he'll, he'll have that sense of, of what his body, mind, heart need in a given situation. But I think that clustering also helps. Like these are breath practices that are more energizing. These are breath practices that are more calming. Mm-hmm. So I, I just love the the variety as well. And I think there are important lessons for us to glean as adults too, is right. again, realizing what we need in a given moment. It may not be what we initially are gravitating towards. Sometimes we right. choose a strategy that sort of matches where we're at energetically And that might not give us the effect that we want. So if we're really hyped up, we might be drawn to a more vigorous practice, but that might actually continue to rev us up and keep our nervous system on high alert. Whereas if we, as you said, are able to tune and recognize, okay, I'm actually feeling kind of on edge. And even though I'm drawn to something vigorous, I think I maybe want to settle down more, or maybe I'll start with something vigorous Mm -hmm. and then exactly transition into something more grounding. So it's a bit of an art, I think, to figure out how to match the practices with what our body, minds, and hearts need. Yeah. In a given and that's why I provide such a big variety in my books for, because y- you'll go through with your child and you'll find ones that work and others won't work as well. They just won't resonate. And that's totally fine. But that's why, you know, for, for self-awareness, exactly. I have a whole bunch of practices and for young kids, attaching it to something that really, um, uses their imagination like clouds. You know, I have one that's just imagine you're a cloud in the sky and you can be any kind of cloud you want. You know, you could be a white fluffy cloud. You could be a dark gray storm cloud. You can be a sparkly cloud full of snowflakes. You know, you could be angry and, and um, you know, a thunderstorm, you know, whatever you want to be. But just having children be able to attach it to something that's really imaginative and a, a kid-friendly concept, um, is a fun way for them to tune into what's happening or colors, right? My color song is all about self-awareness, right? I am red today, hopping mad like a playground ball, you know, all the different colors have an emotion or a feeling attached to them. Um, And there's, so there's a whole menu of them, like you said, because you don't really know um, what's going to resonate with your child, but when you find it, then you can, you can keep that one, you know, in the toolbox as a regular practice. But that's why I keep them short and and provide a big variety so that something everyone can find something that works for them and their child. And I and I think the as you said, I know you've said this a number of times, but this emphasis on short for kids, mm-hmm. I think, is so valuable. And even as a parent, I've had to reconceptualize over time what short means because I right. <laughs> I remember one of the first times we were trying to 
introduce a, a bit of silence before meals as a way to connect with gratitude and just honor where the food came from and, and who prepared it and all of that. I think we started off with five minutes and that was like, Right, way, way too long. And then we, yeah. we reduced to a minute and, and that was sometimes too long. So now we'll right. often do counting backwards from 10. And, yeah. and that is perfect for most days. <laughs> um, yeah. but, but essentially, yeah, I think sometimes being open and flexible, as you said, to right. what resonates in the moment, what works for your child and letting go of our preconceived notions, so to speak, exactly. of what might be and needed. doing what's what works. And it's a skill that needs to be developed like any other skill. Mm-hmm. I mean, you wouldn't go out and try to run 10 miles on the first day you've ever run, right? right. You know, it's better to run to the mailbox and back mm-hmm. and then be like, yay, I ran to the mailbox and back. And, you know, maybe do that a whole bunch of times before you try to, whatever you can do. I say that to parents and teachers all the time, pick something as small as it needs to be for you to do it consistently, mm-hmm. as small as it needs to be. If that is three deep breaths every morning and that is it, great. Mm-hmm. You know, do it mm-hmm. and then try to build from there. But if you, if yeah, if you bite off more than you can chew from the, from the get-go, you know, it'll lead to frustration and, you know, and uh, it's not going to get you where you want to go. Short and consistent will get you where you need to go. Mm-hmm. And I think it is so often our, our judgment that gets in the way, yes. like we're not doing it right, or we're not doing it enough, yeah. or um, just all of these judgmental thoughts that the mind generates, I think can get in the way of us practicing because we feel like it's not correct enough. It's not right. And I think being aware of that too, and not right. allowing that to be a barrier to. There's no wrong way. There's no wrong way to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. there really isn't. There's just no wrong way to do it. But that's another thing that does get in people's way. They get mm-hmm. really hung up on on the right way to do it. And I haven't had the training and I don't know how to, you know, who am I to bring this to my child? Mm-mm. There's so many free resources you can find out there to help support you. But the bottom line is there's no wrong way to do it. Just, you know, tune into your body, find some, find a simple practice that works and do it consistently. Mm-hmm. So Kira, I'm wondering if you could wave a magic wand and create mm-hmm. some kind of movement in our, our society, do mm. you have like a, a wish or I'm, I, I imagine it might be hard to just choose one if some, yeah. I'm imagining this question <laughs> being reversed for me, but I'm curious to know about like your aspirations and dreams for us and our children and our society when it comes to some of these topics. Is there some kind of you you already are inspiring a movement in in my mind, but what would your wish be? What would you wish yeah. to happen to change? That's a huge question, but it would absolutely involve the school system. It would involve the public school system in this country. Um, and you know, it's such what a great question to be able to just do whatever I want in the public school system. Right, sky's <laughs> the limit. I've always been just trying to take these little baby steps with, you know, getting just take a few deep breaths before math. But, you know, if I could, I'd maybe rejigger the whole thing. I mean, I think it would be reimagining the framework in which we teach our children in the public school system in this country. I mean, I think it would be, you know, incorporating 
tons more movement, um, tons more music and tons more mindfulness and just figuring out how to, you know, greatly shorten the amount of time kids sit still in one place and are talked to by someone at the front of the room. Just, just reimagine it, you know, have very, and, and some schools are doing this and some teachers are doing this. Um, and I love teachers with all my heart and I, they have the hardest job in the world and they are, they should all be making a million dollars a year as far as I'm concerned. Um, so I don't mean this as a criticism, but I do think that um, reimagining the, the, the framework, right? Like the, the way they're allowed to, maybe they're allowed to sit or maybe they, I mean, sorry, stand instead of sit, maybe they are allowed to sit on a, a bouncy ball or have fidget things or, you know, reimagine what the classroom looks like, you know, have much more frequent breaks, have music and rhythm activities frequently, have, you know, mindfulness breaks frequently, be allowed to go to a, a Zen zone or a mindfulness corner or a, you know, peace place, or there's all these different names. And again, lots of schools are starting to do this, but incorporating those three M's, not as extras, you know, not as mm -hmm. if you sit still and do your math for three hours, then you'll get to go outside and run around. No, it's not a reward. Mm -hmm. It's a necessity, mm -hmm. right? It's a necessity. So just reimagining the framework of school you know, getting that important learning in. They, of course, they need to learn. You know, the 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 academics are are crucial. The education is crucial, but the framework around it, the way it's delivered, and the way that they absorb it, could be um, reimagined in a way that I believe many fewer, lot le lot less kids would be left behind because they're not moving enough. You know, their brains just aren't engaged. They're they're not self-aware. They're not self-regulated. They're not in the state optimum state for learning. Mm -hmm. So why well, I would love to take a crack at that, <laughs> but you know, there's just a lot that can be done and, and baby steps are happening. I really believe. And that's, you know, one of the missions that I have is getting to classroom teachers and helping them incorporate these three M's into the classroom, however they can do it. Teachers are so overwhelmed right now that yeah. particularly now, but they always have been that often when I walk into a room and I've been brought in by the principal, they're kind of like, oh, great. One more thing we need to, you know, we need to learn or something else that's being put on our plate. So I try really hard not to be an extra burden on their plate, but something that will actually help make their jobs easier, help their children, put them in a better state for learning so that the classroom is more efficient and productive. So just baby steps for now. Mm -hmm. um, but in my perfect world, yes, the framework would, of education in this country would be reimagined with movement and music and mindfulness incorporated throughout the day. I love that. I love that vision. And do you have suggestions or tips, Kira, in addition to the ones you've already highlighted during our time together so far of ways in which we as parents or adults can model some of these strategies can help flip the script on some of the ways that this is conceptualized in terms of you know how we talk to children about mm -hmm. regulation or their minds and bodies and hearts so ways that we can help counteract some of the conditioning that you and many others are working hard to to undo how we can be a part of the the solution, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> again, any parent knows that 
um, kids do what you do, not what you say. (laughs) (laughs) No matter how many times you say to do something, it's what you do that they will imitate, that they will emulate, right? So I try really hard when I am getting wound up, when I am feeling stressed, when I am, um, you know, about to go off the deep end, for lack of a better word, to pause and and show them that I, I just, mm-hmm. I need to breathe. I don't say anything, mm-hmm. but I will make sure that they see me, mm-hmm. right? Or I will say something like, you know what? I This is not a great time for me to have this conversation. I'm feeling upset. I'm going to take a break and come back when I feel calmer or more regulated or whatever. So I, I try really, really hard. I am not hundred percent successful. <laughs> that is for sure. I don't think any parent is, but I try really hard to set that example. Mm-hmm. So if there's any way to model it in your own life, you're, you know, you're in the line at the grocery store. It is taking forever. You're late for the thing. You know what I mean? Instead of complaining, can you find a way to pause take a few deep breaths, find something positive to say, right? Or, find, you know, and just set that example. Um, that's the, the best advice I can give is to model it in any way. And there are a million ways to do this. Again, this doesn't need to be a formal practice, mm-hmm. but there are so many situations throughout every day where we can model this these mindful practices. Mm-hmm. Even if it's you're the only one at the beginning of the meal pausing for a minute, If you do that, everyone else at the table, they're going to notice. They might Mm -hmm. not do it, but they're going to notice, right? They're going to notice. And maybe if you do that every time, after the fifth or sixth or tenth time, they'll join you. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll ask you what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll, right? It's like you said, the time with your son, when you just went, you know, a a few feet away and started regulating yourself, he noticed and came Mm -hmm. over. And it was so much more effective than you saying, hey, I'm going to go over here and breathe. I really think you should do this too. You know what I mean? Exactly. I mean, who, you know, what child in the universe doesn't push back when asked to, you know, this is what you should do, right? Mm -hmm. By a parent. So it's modeling. It's setting the example as best we can. Mm -hmm. And I think as you beautifully illustrated so often, we can do that without words. And sometimes it's more Mm -hmm. effective to show it without the words they can kind of get in the way sometimes, right. um, or it can feel like a, a demand or an instruction or something as opposed yeah. to an invitation. Te- like we're teaching, we're teaching, exactly. we're teaching, you know, mm-hmm. and they get taught things all day long and they're always being asked to do things and, you know, instructed for this and that and the other thing. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. model mm-hmm. because most, I mean, almost every child wants to imitate and be like their parent anyway, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, until they get to be a certain age, you know, parents are their idols. They, they want to be like you. And it's so just setting that example without the words makes it the most effective. Mm -hmm. And as a fellow imperfect parent, I, I think there's also some really helpful, modeling around repair and being able to revisit Mm. things and to say, you know, when you were telling me that story about school, I realized I was distracted. And so next time I'm going to, you know, pause first or breathe first or or whatever. But I think there also can be some modeling around how we respond when we do something that we view as a mistake or that we wish that we hadn't done. So it's, there's, as you said, just so many opportunities throughout every day to 
engage in this kind of modeling in a way that I think is really impactful and, and powerful and really sticks with kids. I think that's a great, great point. I try hard when, um, when a correction is needed or when a, you know, there is behavior that really needs to be talked about to make sure I talk about myself as well, Mm -hmm. you know, say we all have things we need to work on. Mm -hmm. I am working on X and, and, you know, maybe it's, what do you think you need to work on? Or maybe you could work on X, but it's, you know, it's, it's both of us. Mm -hmm. I think that's just a really great point that, um, setting that example as well. Mm-hmm. I am not perfect. You are not perfect. We are both working really hard on whatever this is mm-hmm. and we forgive and we move forward and you know, it's, it's together, right? You never want it to be, you did this thing and that's, you know, that wasn't good. And this is, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's both of us. It's the, the repair piece and mindfulness. Um, just again, that self-awareness piece of tuning in to what's going on with yourself is so valuable in that regard. Um, will really help you with that repair with your child. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I, I do think there is so much benefit to these practices in terms of the relationship component, as you're saying, that that ability to tune into ourselves allows us to tune into other people, to observe their body language, their tone of voice, pay attention, really listen mindfully. So I, I think there is a lot of ways in which some of these intrapersonal practices, so to speak, are generalizable to more relation, relationship, mindfulness, relational mindfulness Mm -hmm. in a way that's really beneficial. I agree. Kira, I also want to take a minute to highlight another aspect of the example that you gave that I think is really powerful, which is the modeling of vulnerability. So to be able to name our emotional experience, not just when we make a mistake, but especially when we make a choice or engage in an action that brings about shame. I think the modeling of how to make a repair is really important, but I think the modeling of experiencing emotion is also really important. And I think there's also a really helpful opportunity as you articulated to connect around shared humanity to normalize how many of these challenges are challenges that we all face. Like you said, there is something for each of us that is a growth edge. We are all working on something. None of us is perfect. And I think there is this harmful message that exists in our society about perfectionism. And so I think the modeling of vulnerability, the modeling of how to make a repair, the modeling of emotional experiencing and naming of emotion, the modeling of how we talk about our imperfections, how we can unite around this shared human experience of having growth opportunities, I think is just a really powerful set of messages to convey. So I know we're unfortunately nearing the end of our time here, and I want to give you an opportunity to highlight anything that we haven't focused on that really speaks to your heart or that you want to make sure we talk about before we wrap up? Is is there anything that you want to mention or highlight or lift up? Mm -hmm. I mean, I really want to just reinforce um, the idea that anyone, anyone can bring mindful practices to the children in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, There are just so many wonderful resources out there. Of course, I have a lot and I'd be 
thrilled if you went and got my books and, and downloaded <laughs> my albums, but you don't have to. There are lots and lots of, of wonderful resources out there and just get started because you will see the benefits for your child and for yourself. Um, and that being said, I have uh, lots of ways to support you. If you want to get in touch, my website is kirawilly.com. And I have a new album coming out this fall, which I'm excited about. Um, I'm launching a membership for anyone who wants to bring yoga to children. So that's exciting. That's coming up really soon. Stay tuned. Um, if you want to hear from me, you can sign up for my newsletter and that kind of thing. But just get started. If there's any way, especially if you're a classroom teacher and we work with young with lots of young children, how can you incorporate those three M's into what you do? Not only simple practices of mindfulness that you you um, bring in at you know consistent moments throughout the day, but how can you incorporate more movement into what you do? How can you take more frequent movement breaks? How can you add music? Can you play a song at the beginning of the class? Can you have a beat? Can you do a rhythm activity that passes around the room? You'll be amazed at what it does for children's focus and what it does to their brains to help them, you know, become really primed for learning. So anything you can do to bring those three M's into your world with your kids, it's going to be great. You won't regret it. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I love that. Keeper. Thank you so much. And as, as we've been saying throughout, I think even though kids especially benefit from these three M's, we as adults do too. And oh, so yes. it's really just helpful for, for all of us and mm-hmm. our collective well being and healing. So I think finding ways as, as adults too, to practice these three M's with children or, or on our own, because sometimes we get so far into adulthood that we lose that sense of awe and creativity that comes right. from being a child and even making up your own songs and your own rhythms and beating yes. on pots and pans and clapping and snapping. And right. there are just, as you said, so, so many possibilities, it's really limitless. And so figuring out what works for you. And I think your resources are so incredible and such a helpful springboard in that regard. And so, as I said earlier, I really highly encourage anyone who has not become as intense of a follower as me and my family (laughs) to check out your books and your music and your videos and your yoga sequences. It's all just such a gift. And so Thank you so much for, for being here and sharing your passion and wisdom and expertise with us. I'm so grateful. My pleasure. You your time. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's my, it's my privilege. You're so welcome. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave a review. And if you'd like to reach out or connect more, I would love to hear from you. So please check out my website or follow me on Instagram. To find me on Instagram, you can search for Dr. Foynes. That is D-R-F-O-Y-N-E-S. And to learn more about me and connect via my website, you can visit melissafoynes.com. That is M-E-L-I-S-S-A-F-O-Y-N-E-S.com. Thank you so much for carving out the time to join me this week, and I look forward to having you join the next time.